Welcome to another episode of Psyche of Sales. Thank you for joining us. This is where we explore the mindset and the psyche of top salespeople and sales leaders. My name's Johnny Lee, CEO and co-founder of Enable SE, and I'm excited about this one. This went for about an hour, and it felt like it went for 10 minutes. Today, we're joined by Chaz Lichardello, who is part of The Chaser and also Planet America. And I met Chaz at a charity function where he held court and an audience absolutely captivated for 90 minutes with nothing but himself, a projector, and a kid's karaoke machine. It was actually phenomenal to watch. And one Jerry Seinfeld quote later, which got him engaged, and it got him to actually agree to sit on a podcast with us and talk about sales. So in this, please get involved and listen to the end because he talks about his early days in sales and how he relates it to comedy on how that efficiency of words and message helps get that message across faster, but also how he takes almost a, an engineering or scientific view in preparation before he does a sketch or before he gets on TV, and how we can relate that to before a pitch or a presentation to really get our message across and connect with that audience. The final thing, and I really don't want you to miss this, is he believes that the preparation actually frees him up to just be himself and just focus on being present in the moment. And that was what makes him at his best. So listen, and if you like it, please give us some feedback, give us a review, like it, share it, and let's get this message out to as many people as we can, changing the way the world sells. I might start by getting you to introduce yourself, if that's okay, albeit I think we all know who you are. <laughs> My name is Chaz Lichardello, the unpronounceable last name there. Uh, I have previous, I'm probably best known for my work on The Chaser, where I got myself into all kinds of mischief and uh, often legal and, and sometimes illegal. And I'm also, these days I make Planet America, which is an American politics show on uh, ABC News, not News 24. They don't like when you say News 24 anymore, ABC News. Apart from that, I, I did a science law degree when I was at uni and I've got a lot of tales, so let me tell you some of them. I can't wait to hear them. And look, to put this into context, because uh, you'll be a bit different on a masterclass from the people we've interviewed in the past, and and I approached you and you were um, humble enough to, to at least uh, allow us to chat to you about this, but I've always had this view, and I've listened to a number of comedians talk to it, that there's a, there's a science in communication, uh, there's also art to it as well. And I've always wanted to explore how the art and science of comedy relates to what we do, whether it be in sales or pitching or presentation. Uh, and from that, you mentioned it might be interesting for you, but you also mentioned you may have had a bit of a sales background. So do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yes. Well, when I was when I was uh, doing the aforementioned science law degree, I had to make some money somehow. And the way I did it was through sales. My dad is a real estate agent. And so I was kind of surrounded by that as a, as a kid. And at uni, my job was I was basically cold selling message bank because uh, at that point in time, mobile phones had just started and, and, and you didn't have a messaging service with your phone. You had to pay extra for it. And I used to go out in supermarkets and just approach people at random, ask them if they had a phone and then try and sell message bank to them on their phone, which was really really hard, like really hard because these people, they did not want to be stopped as you might imagine. And to be honest, I actually developed a lot of techniques on, first of all, the judgment of when someone was going to be a likely target or not. Yeah. And then secondly, different ways to approach different people. About 
10 years later, I was making the war on everything. And my job on the war on everything was essentially to harass people and to convince them to do things that they that was not in their interest to do. Uh, to, I often was doing the candid camera kind of stunts where I was trying to push people's gullibility as far as I possibly could. And I dipped into that bag of tricks that I developed doing cold selling over and over and over again. And it really saw me saw me through quite nicely. Uh, I'd mentioned to you before we, we started that they don't talk about your uh, sales career on Wikipedia. And so I didn't <laughs> see anything about that. But it, it does bring some curiosity and some questions around this idea of you've obviously learned the qualification or, or judgment on, on who might stop and who might not. Um, what else did you learn from a sales perspective? And then we can talk about how that relates to, to your comedy. Honestly, the, the thing, <laughs> I don't know if you guys can relate to this, but the thing that's most useful that I learned from sales was the ability to get out of my own skin because I found when I first started, especially cold selling, when I first started approaching people, it was just horrific. Like, because I, I, you know that these people don't want you to talk to them and it's just, it's, it, it just crushes you. And I, I developed this possibly psychotic technique of actually getting out of my own skin and just telling myself, you know what, you're just doing this. You're just doing this. It, it, it's not a question of whether you like it or don't like it. You're not even thinking like that. You're just doing it. Just go and do it, and then afterwards you can regret it. And I and I started to do that over and over. I got really good at it, being able to just switch off the part of my brain that was going, no, and that's exactly what I used over and over again with those chaser stunts. When people ask, how do you do the APEC thing? I just switched off that part of my brain, the part of my brain saying, you're going to get shot. <laughs> that part of my brain, just switch it off. Yeah. And I developed that switch through the through cold selling. I suppose it would depend on which shopping centres you're working at, which depending on whether getting shot was a risk uh, as well for that. <laughs> but, but I think because I've done door-to-door selling when I was younger, uh, that's how I started. Mm-hmm. And I found it really challenging just the rejection that you would get on a regular basis because your brain has to switch off in a way because you're telling yourself out of every 20 people I speak to, 19 are going to tell me to go away. Mm. And so approaching each person is really challenging. Mm. And so, again, putting that switch on, I think all of us in sales can relate to that mm. and hearing it on how you've used it as well. But I'm curious because you've had to pitch some pretty interesting ideas, I imagine, to ABC or to radio shows and things like that. Uh, have you used any of the sales techniques or, or your comedy communication techniques in how you would pitch an idea? I wouldn't necessarily say I use like sales techniques in terms of in terms of making a sale with pitching, but what I did use was there was a certain kind of fake charisma that you develop when you're doing sales yeah. where you just act really confident and really warm and really uh, you and me, we've got a special connection. Yep. And uh and yeah, I definitely turned that on when I was doing when I, when I'm doing pitches. But it's not not so much I try and make a sale so much as I just try and try and fake this warm confidence. And, and that's I'm sure I don't need to tell you that's the secret to everything in the world, not just pitching comedy, but everything. If you just act like you're supposed to be somewhere, yeah, and you act like you belong, and you act like you and the person you're talking to have a special warm connection, and yeah. everyone else doesn't really get this connection that we've got, you're halfway there before you even begin. 
So I no longer feel as special about our connection that I thought. We'd have to, you know, <laughs> Sorry, we'll put Dave. that off to one side. Yeah, it's, uh, might have to call it here, but no, I, I think that's it's interesting to hear it, and I suppose the career you've chosen will also involve quite a bit of rejection. Is that a fair thing to say? Very much so. Very much. Well, like I said, in particular with the war and everything, the, the stunts that that I in particular were, were doing were were designed to be horrible. <laughs> yeah. We all had our role on, yeah. the, on the show and we all had our specialties and it just so happened because of my particular set of skills that my specialty was doing the things that no one else would possibly want to do. I got very good at doing that, unfortunately. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> the problem with being good with something that's really uncomfortable, isn't it? Because yeah. you know, no one else is going to put their hand up to try it. Absolutely. So let's get to a bit of the science behind what it is that you do. You're a comedy writer, you're a comedy deliverer and presenter in in what it is that you do. You mentioned you're in the middle of writing a script at the moment. Uh, I might go to you and when you you are writing a joke or writing an idea, what's the process? How do you start? What what do you do? Look, that's a really good question. Obviously, different people do different things. I happen to be a very mathematical person and so I approach scripts and and stunts and jokes, whatever I'm writing, in a very mathematical fashion. Uh, so to put more flesh on those bones, I'll do, depending on, okay, let, let, I'll give you two examples, two yep. very different examples. One is war on everything style stunts. What I literally used to do, and this is actually pretty relevant to you as well, what I used to do is I used to draw flowcharts of what I would expect to happen and what I would do in the, in those instances. So when so if I'm approaching someone, I would say, okay, here's the offer. I would write down what my basic offer is, the actual line, and then I'd say, okay, now there are maybe three different things that can occur from here. Either they engage or they reject or they ignore. And in those three instances, what am I going to do? And I would plot out a line or a joke for each instance and I go, okay, when I do that, there are two or three instances in each case. And I would I would draw the full, I'd think through the full flow chart. And then when I actually got out there, I often wouldn't use the lines that I'd pre-written. Yeah. But the fact that I had taken the time to think through the entire flow chart meant that I was miles ahead of the game. I was never surprised. And I would often off the cuff come up with a much better line than I'd pre-written. Yeah. Because I'd already put the thought into it. And so that that was something that I found very useful, flow charting all possible options, just as a means of wrapping your head about around what you're about to do and getting yourself in the game. So that's that that that's one kind of technique that I used to do and people found it crazy, but it worked really well for me. Can uh, we pick apart that just really quickly and then yeah, we'll sure. have a second technique? Yeah. I think first thing that comes to mind is I'm imagining the audience watching it mm. with no one thinking that you flowcharted every single possibility. They're all just thinking this guy's crazy and he's he's just going out there and doing his thing. Yeah. But when we prep someone for a pitch, we always talk about rehearsal, 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 mm. because we're preparing them for to be so comfortable and confident that it doesn't matter what comes up, yeah. they're going to be able to deal with it. And so we don't want them to be word for word because something might happen that might shift that. But we've never actually thought about this this flow chart. We'll do more, what are the five most likely questions you'll get asked? What are the five most difficult? And how do you prepare for it? Mm-hmm. But that idea of, you know, we talk about practice, 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 so that when you're in that situation, you can just be yourself and think. Yeah. It sounds like for you, you've done all the prep so that you can look like you're so natural in the moment. 
Exactly. Exactly. Like it's it's it, it's real confidence. It's not fake confidence. It's real yeah. confidence that you're going in and you're thinking nothing's going to surprise me here. That doesn't mean then that that they're not going to say something that you hadn't thought of. But emotionally, there's only three or four options. Yeah. From as a response to any particular offer, and I'm sure it's the same with you guys. That like there are only so many different emotional states yeah. a person can be in. Now they might say it in a weird way, or they might they might there might be some strange element to their wording. But still, if you've thought of the emotion beforehand, it's not going to surprise you. And then you have the confidence of knowing you have a safety net. If I get halfway through and I'm going nowhere, I'll just use the line that I, I had before. But I'll but in the meantime, I can. I can take a, a lot more of a risk because I know the safety net is there. Yeah. Whereas if there's nothing there and you're and just below you there is nothing but metaphorical space, yeah. you're much more likely to panic and to go conservative and to kind of mess it up. And so the that's at least what I've found. And so if for me, if if any, it's not only about forcing you to think about what's to come, but also about creating a confidence that you can you can then use to push your luck a lot further than you otherwise would. And so the bit from that that I love the most, though, is this idea that it's not false confidence because you've done the work. Yeah. So you can genuinely just be confident, be present, be in the moment and, and just, in a way, probably just enjoy it. Yeah. 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 And also I, what I would say, and I'm, it's probably the same for you guys as well, is you need to stick the landing. So if there's one, if there's one, phrase that you are going to memorize word for word it's your landing like uh, you might wander all over the place in the middle there yeah. knowing that you have all the options already thought through yeah but especially with comedy you need to get the punchline absolutely right and so then you come around to the punchline or the or the the gate to the next section whatever it may be like there's going to be a moment when you have to get it right and and that's the bit that you that you absolutely do memorize because yep. yeah, you need to get that right, and the rest you can wander around a little bit and, and improvise. So that, that that's the other aspect of it as well. Okay, so you've got a, another example. The, the yes, yeah, yeah. The other thing I would say is, as a when I'm writing scripts, and this is the case, not just comedy, any script. This is the same with Planet America when I'm writing news. This is the same even when I'm writing essays. It doesn't matter. For me, the most important thing by a mile is structure. And I think that's something that separates the pros from the amateurs. Amateurs can be can can have really great lines, can be really funny or really entertaining or whatever path you're in. They can they can hit and miss. But a pro thinks about the overall structure. It's not about one moment, it's about the overall impression. What do you? What message are you trying to convey? What story are you trying to tell? What are you trying to leave them with? Yeah. And that's all about structure. That's not about a particular line. And so when I'm writing a script, whatever I'm doing, I think of the structure first of all. I think, okay, what's the overall story? I I, I abstract it as far as I possibly can and go, okay, this is beginning, middle, end. Right. Okay. So that this is the summary of beginning, middle, end. There might be. Then I go, okay, let's flesh out the middle a little bit. So then I'll turn the middle into, for say, five dot points rather than one. And I'll flesh each dot point out further and further and further. And so that's how I write. I start, I start with 
three lines and those three lines become 20 lines and those 20 lines each become another 10 lines. And then finally when I've done that, then I go through and write the dialogue once I've, once I've got every single step mapped out. And I find, number one, the dialogue then just flows freely. Like it's, just, it's, it's much easier to write that dialogue. It's much higher standard dialogue as well. Yeah. And importantly, you got the structure right. And that is, to me, that's everything. And I, I would draw your attention to a comedian that I imagine most of you may not have heard of. Um, some of you may have. Uh, this guy called Dave Gorman. He's okay. British. Have you heard of him, Johnny? I haven't, no. No, no, most people haven't. He's not super okay. famous. But he's, uh, he's quite successful in Britain. He's had a few TV shows in Britain. He is brilliant at structure. I would okay. recommend if you go on YouTube and watch something like uh, he's got a TV show called Modern Life is Goodish, okay. which has got a lot of his episodes up there on YouTube in full. Yep. You watch that and you just go, the structure of this is just genius. Everything thatches together perfectly yeah. and yeah. it's just, it's just, yeah, it is literally genius. And I, I, I feel like, yeah, that, that I can't emphasise that enough, getting the structure right rather than, worrying about particular moments. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and I think the idea, like, again, I keep relating it back to, to what we do or our clients might be doing, but when we talk about walking into a pitch, we sort of mention, like, where do you sit? Where are they sitting? Uh, what are you wearing? How do you walk into a room? Like, we try and look at every aspect of it because as you're talking about creating some form of story and, and sometimes we've seen a pitch fail, so to speak, is because they've prepared the presentation so perfectly but haven't actually thought about how do they get the audience in the room, mm-hmm. how do they order them a coffee, but how do they get them in mid-pitch while someone's leaning over people. Like there's these little things that actually break out the story, so to speak. And I think, you know, a lot of people wouldn't realise the the structure or the science that you put into what we see that looks effortless. Mm. And I always well, well, if, you, if, you, if you get the structure right, it should look effortless. Yeah. Like it should look easy. And it's definitely not. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, so interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I, I, I think what you're saying is absolutely right. That like what, like a, a real classic amateur mistake is just to sit down and write the script or write, write whatever they're going to do, just line by line by line by line by line. And if you ask them, okay, summarize that in twenty words. There's no way they can do that. Yeah. And if they can't summarize it in twenty words, no one's going to remember any of it. Yep. It's just going to be a flow, a stream of consciousness that flows over them. They might enjoy it at the time. They'll remember none of it. Yeah. But if you, if you can summarise in, in you know, 10 or 20 words an hour of what you're saying, then odds are you're going to hit those 20 words at some point in time yep. to communicate to people. This is the important, this is the important bit. Like everything I just said now is built up to these five words. Yeah, and then they'll remember those five words, and 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 that, that that's obviously the case for sales. But yeah. even like like I said, Planet America. When I write new scripts, I do exactly the same thing. I go, what what is the take home for these people watching this story? Like the uh, and, and I think of it like a story, even though it might just be I might just be talking about facts or graphs. I'm still telling a story. Everything's yeah. a story. So. I suppose a couple of things come to mind. So, so one is we walk in, we try and get someone to prepare for a pitch or they've got a, and they'll show us 65 slides, mm-hmm. but they haven't actually thought about 
the audience, the stakeholders, mm-hmm. and what's the message. And so we always talk about what's your exec summary? What's yeah. the what do they walk away with at the end? Because unless you know that, you can't build the rest, yeah. so to speak. Idle. And, and so we always start with that. And we use this, I think it's an Einstein quote. Um, I was a bit um cynical whether Einstein actually said these things or not, but if you don't understand, if you can't describe an idea in less than 30 seconds then you don't understand it yourself Mm. and it's that idea of it's easy to explain a story in 60 minutes but in 20 seconds that's challenging yeah and if you watch comedians in cars getting coffee and obviously there's some of the greats there and I I sort of mentioned to you once Chris Rock and Jerry Seinfeld talking Mm. how good they are at using that structure in everyday language Yes. Just the jokes that pile out, that the way they use it in the, the least amount of words possible. So how do you use that in your day-to-day or how does it play out for you? Yeah, well, look, look, I think you've identified another thing that is critical to, to effective communication, regardless of what form you're, you're using it, which is the, and this is, okay, to relate this to TV, what we always say with TV is we say assume that your audience is a five-year-old that's a genius, the world's smartest five-year-old. Okay. As in they have no knowledge going into what they're about to watch, but they remember everything that you tell them once. Like oh, so man. so you need to give them all the tools that they need to understand something. Yeah. And they're smart enough to, to, to use those tools, but you cannot assume that they know anything. Yeah. Like the uh, and if and if you if you go in with that mindset, then you stand pretty good chance of bringing the people along who are paying attention. People who aren't paying attention. It's hard to yeah. hard to bring them along. But uh, but yeah, it's and so so what, how this relates to what you just said is the the simple communication. Simple doesn't mean stupid. Yeah. I I have often. Given that I spent a lot of time fixating on American politics, I've often marvelled at the at the the deceptively simple communication in American politics. Yeah. Uh, okay, there are some real morons there. There's no doubt about that. But there are some brilliant people as well. Yeah. Who sound like they could be speaking to an eight year old. But the concepts behind what they're saying are incredibly complicated. It's one of those ones where, when they're doing it right, it seems easy. Yeah. And it, yeah, and it's it's uh, it, you're not impressing anyone, and you're not being effective at all if you're speaking in a hard to decipher manner. If you're using long words, if you use if you're if you're confusing your audience, that's not the sign of intelligence. The smartest guy I ever met. I don't want to. I don't want to distract you with a with a random irrelevant story, but the smartest guy I ever met was this guy at uni who pretty much everyone thought was an idiot until he got the university medal. And the reason they all thought he was an idiot was because he spoke so simply. Yeah. Uh, he's he was miles ahead of all of us. It went in that when we were debating each other and sitting around the the cafe having philosophical chats, but he just yeah. he just didn't show off. Yeah. He 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 kept everything super simple because that's that's what really intelligent people do, and uh, yeah, I I, I so I, I definitely agree very much with the concept that you just put forward. So, so there's a saying that we often use, and it's the, the biggest mistake a salesperson can make is assuming that the customer gets it. 
Uh, and so explain it, but explain it simply. But I like this idea of five-year-old, but a genius five-year-old, because yeah. it gives respect to the audience. It gives yeah. respect to the stakeholders. It, it, it's saying that we have to make it simple yeah. because the audience isn't only focused on us. They haven't no. put their whole life aside. There's more to it. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, and if you look at a show like The Checkout, which I was the script editor for, so I did, like I wrote a lot of the the uh, the segments in the checkout. Yeah. Um, we talked about some extremely complicated stuff, but we did it, I think, well, my daughter was seven when we made the checkout. It was her favourite yeah. show. She yeah. watched it constantly. She understood everything. Yeah, okay. And she was a, she she is a she's a very smart seven year old. <laughs> let me tell you. And it's that that was that was the the audience I was trying to hit. And I felt like we didn't condescend to anyone. We yeah. explained extremely complicated stuff that people would suggest you shouldn't try to explain on commercial TV or so like, you know, mainstream TV. And it worked really well. And I think though that's one of the strengths that you've had and your, your group's had for years is I'm not an intellectual that I can watch it because you can explain something simply mm. and I enjoy it. So therefore I'm going to take it in and use it, you know, as I go forward. Whereas again, too many people try and complicate it, bamboozle you with language. Mm. Yet they want to look like they're the smartest person in the room. Mm. And um, Gary Vaynerchuk talked about his business in, he built a business called Wine Library TV before he became a motivational speaker. And he said, the reason why people flock to him is he described wine in a language that you and I would just talk to. Oh, it oh. tastes like this. Oh, this is really nice. Mm. And he says, and no one likes the wine wanker. No one wants to go on and watch that person talking about tannins and things. And I like wine, but they just want to hear, is it good? Why would I like it? What would I eat it with? Okay, I'll buy it. And he says he actually took that as his whole business concept and idea is just talk straight language with things that people can walk away with, but they're more likely to then repeat it. And I assume in your business that that virility of, a, of language actually works heavily in your favour. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's exactly the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and certainly for us, we, we always want people to create a message that someone could then repeat, that someone could then go and take with them. And so therefore we can't expect everyone to be experts. Um, so when I met you, I, I saw you on stage and, and you had me captivated for I think an hour and 20 minutes in a restaurant uh, with a kid's karaoke machine and mm -hmm. a screen on the wall. And I suppose I would say that was a really successful gig that you did. Um, I know it was for charity, so you didn't get paid for it, but it's uh, successful in, in that sense. I'm curious on, have you had any moments where it just hasn't worked? Oh, yes. <laughs> have I ever? You're not born like that. Yeah. I, I, the, the way I became who I am is from years and years of failure. It's, uh, it, actually, it actually took me, I would say, four years on television before I really knew what I was doing. Yeah, okay. like, and, and there was a lot of failure going on there. You, yeah. you didn't see a lot of it because it didn't get to the screen. Ah. But, uh, but, yeah, but the it's, yeah, I, and, and before then I did did the law review at uni, uh, which is like a comedy, show, a comedy sketch show at uni for five years and there was a lot of failure there as well. Yeah. And I used to write scripts at school and that was 100% failure. So, um, so, yeah, and I failed at a lot of things. And in terms of performance, uh, there was a period in 2005 between TV shows where we had no income and so we did we did a lot of corporates. And at that point in time we weren't very well known. Okay. So we, we, we had to do a lot of them because we weren't earning much from them. Yeah. And, uh, and there were some, some moments when we turned up 
I, I can remember one in particular, I think it was a Commonwealth Bank, and they they really were not interested in what we had to offer. And it's, uh, yeah, you, uh, I, I used the, 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 old, the old sales switch that night, that's for sure, because yeah. <laughs> otherwise I would have hidden under the table after about two minutes. And what do you do in that moment? Do you... Do you continue? Or do you try and engage them more? Like what what's, what's goes through your mind when it, you're running a gig and it's just not working? I think when you're failing badly, you have to acknowledge it because yeah. otherwise it becomes awkward. Like yeah. people start, people, your audience starts to feel sorry for you or your audience starts to wonder, does he realise how badly he's going? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think you need to acknowledge the elephant in the room. <laughs> and when you do it, by the way, that's your first moment when you get a second chance. Yeah. Like the moment you acknowledge it, that very next second, whatever you say next is your chance to get back in okay. because you relieve tension at that moment and people are going, oh, well, at least he realises it. Okay. And then they think positively about you just for that one moment. Yeah. So don't screw up the next thing you say <laughs> because that's your best chance. Yeah. But then the mistake then that a lot of people make is to keep on going on about it. If you keep on going on about it, it becomes about you not your audience, and that, that, that creates its own form of awkward. So you, 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 there's a balance to be struck, but you just got to keep on going. You can't, you can't give up. Like at, at the very least, at the very least, you want to earn some respect yeah. from everyone knowing that you stuck at it till the end. If you give up, that makes you not just a failure but a pathetic failure, and you don't want to be pathetic. <laughs> like you can settle for being a brave failure. That's right. That's right. There's a bravery in, in, in failure. I, I agree with you. But I also think like we, we get people to rehearse and rehearse, especially that first few minutes so they can be comfortable. And I know that if I've got to speak on a stage, I'll go and walk the stage and, and get myself to a point where I'm comfortable because if the person in front of the room's uncomfortable, the room's uncomfortable. Absolutely. You can actually see like people's shoulders are up like this, but so is the audience. Mm. They're, they're sort of on edge thinking, I hope this person's okay. And mm. it's not what you want the audience thinking. And I wonder if in those early years where you weren't necessarily as successful as you wanted, if if maybe that it's just you hadn't hit your, your straps yet, you hadn't hit that comfort level where you could be truly authentic in front of an audience. Is there any truth to that? Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that is certainly, that's certainly part of it, The that you, you develop, uh, and you develop an appre- uh, not appreciation, a a sense of your own voice over yeah. time. Like at the beginning, you're just imitating other people. At the beginning, you're imitating other comedians, and usually quite badly. Yeah. But uh, uh, over a period of time, you develop your own voice, and you become confident in that voice, and uh, it becomes yeah, you become definitely more authentic. I think also you develop a sense after a while of it doesn't matter. Like when, when you first start, everything seems massive. Every failure seems like the end of the world. Every every gig seems like the one that's going to make or break you. And after a while you realise that's just not the case. Nothing makes you and nothing breaks you. It's 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 a long slog no matter what you're doing yeah. and no matter how successful you are. So that knowledge, once you're really comfortable with that, you can relax a lot. And as you just said, if you're uncomfortable on stage, it makes the audience twice as uncomfortable as you are. You just need to be comfortable. And if you, as soon as you relax a bit and realise that it just doesn't matter, you're failing, but, yeah, hey, this is a great anecdote right now. Like, yeah. I'm failing so badly, this is actually kind of fun. Like, when you start to approach it like that, you become a lot, like actually, you, you, 
you develop a few different personas. I'm not personas. You develop a few different modes as yeah. you go on. And I've got a particular mode that I can I can almost act drunk sometimes, where I just don't give a shit and I'm just like throwing my notes around and whatever. It's uh that that's why that's why I tend to get these days when things start badly. Yeah. I just go, you know what? Ain't working. Let's go. <laughs> Let's just get rid of safety net. Let's go. Yeah. The audience, the audience then approach you in a different manner and it's and and they I find it works for me yeah. I wouldn't do that all the time but just that's part of what you're talking about the being comfortable and yeah. being confident and like I said knowing it actually doesn't matter now I know I know in your gig it probably does matter a bit more because because yeah, like it might be a really important account that you're trying to hit or something like that I, I get that. But just from a performance point of view, if you can if you can convince yourself that in the end that this is just what I'm doing at the moment, and case sarah sarah, it you're much more likely to succeed. But but I think this idea doesn't matter. Mm. Of course, it matters because you're learning from it; it's giving you experience. But mm. sometimes losing a council, losing a deal, like certainly for me, I've, I've ruined a number of them early in my career that I think I win because I lost back then. Yeah. And we, we often ask the question, if you could start again, what would you do differently? And people say, I just trust that it would work out. Mm-hmm. I get less caught up in the, am I failing early in my career? And just say, well, I'm just learning. Just use this as a learning. It's experience and keep chalking it up to that. Yeah. And look, and speaking for myself, this might not be the same for you or for for your the people listening to this, but speaking for myself, I learned so much from failure, like yeah. so much. I, I think I probably learned more than most comedians do like I think I think most comedians start with more natural talent than me like I I, I kind of I I almost got into comedy because it was the thing that I was least suited to do when I was when I was little I had a massive stutter like I was I when I was a kid I had a huge stutter I didn't talk to people at all I used to hide behind furniture rather than approaching people Um, I was really timid I um, I was I mean I'm kind of spectrumy like the like the like that sounds like a, a a joke. It's not. I actually am kind of spectruming, which is part of the reason I approach things in such a mathematical way. Yeah. Um. And no one who knew me in year seven would have guessed where I would have ended up. I'm telling you that now. Yeah. And so I was starting from way behind, but for whatever reason, I became obsessed with it, and I just learned so much from trying over and over again and just failing comprehensively <laughs> repeatedly yeah. but then learning from the failure and and don't get me wrong i'm not suggesting that i didn't make the same mistake 50 times in a row <laughs> it's not like i just made the same mistake once and then, a mistake once and then never made it again but i was very very keen to learn from my mistakes and to be to not just accept criticism but to seek it out to be unhappy if I if I didn't get criticism. Yeah, okay. Because I at that point in time when I was when I was starting out, I thought it was a waste of time if I didn't get criticism. I, I, the last thing I wanted was for somebody to go, oh that 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 that's great. That's wonderful. Because I knew that was bullshit. If 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 I was wonderful I'd be on TV right now rather than <laughs> in year 12. <laughs> so I didn't want wonderful. I wanted okay, what's what do I need to improve? And then I'd work on it. Yeah, that's so good. Um, 
we use this sort of term that that you give feedback and brave feedback to each other because no one's got better from the term you're good. Yeah. What do we learn from that? And Jerry Seinfeld talks about he watches skateboarders and he says the amount of failure you must go through to perfect a trick, he always looks at them and thinks they're going to be okay. They're going to be okay because they've had to fail. And I think the the big aspect of this is that you keep pushing through. Like you yeah. keep going back and doing it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And and you and you obviously develop all kinds of uh, skills just from resilience, but leaving that aside, leaving the resilience aside, yeah. I think your most important talent as a professional writer, and I bet it's exactly the same for sales, is your judgment. Yeah. And you only develop judgment from trial and error and learning what works and what doesn't work. Like when I'm referring to judgment, I mean that moment when you go, yep, yeah, I nailed that. Yeah. Like the... When people first start out, they think they nail everything, and yeah. they nail nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so, but you, if, but yeah, it's it's a problem in itself if you just keep on working and reworking and reworking things after you've gotten there, but you just don't know you've gotten there. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's its own problem. And yep. so, and so, you really need to have a sense of, okay, I'm fine tuning because I haven't quite got it right yet. I haven't quite got the nuance. I haven't quite. I haven't quite made the made the connection yet. I need to work this a little bit more. Ah, got it. Okay, I can leave that. And now I can move on to the next bit. Like that's a really, really important part of becoming a professional. And that's only derived by trial and error and failure. That's the only way. See, this is perfect because we, we use the terminology, we want people to treat sales as a profession. And sales is one of those aspects that if you can speak well, connect with people, people sort of take that as that's my skill, mm-hmm. as opposed to the work that can go on into the background and being a true professional. And there's a lot of it's a highly paid profession as well, but you don't have to necessarily go through what you have to do to become a comedian. Mm-hmm. Like Kevin Hart, who's obviously doing very well at the moment, he tells a story where he's in a small comedy club with about 12 people and Patrice O'Neill is standing on the side of the stage and he tells a joke and all he hears is, Ugh on the side of the stage and then he heard even your voice annoys me and just walks <laughs> off and, and talking about you know trying to get reps and trying to get time up and things like this whereas in our industry we get paid to learn we get paid to be the junior we get paid to do phone-based selling and so we don't have to go through the fight necessarily I did commission only when I was younger so I felt like I had a bit of that um learning came out there but we don't have to fight to have it so exact and so therefore often people don't go to that level. Um, having watched you live, your ability to hold an audience and not just one group but a, a number of the audience, I, I'm keen to if you could give an example of how do you think about holding an audience and, and, and how do you think about the different parts of the audience and keeping them together? Well, the first thing I've already mentioned is the structure. Like okay. that night that you that you described, I walked in with a sheet of paper with five lines on it and yeah. those, those five lines were were the story I was going to tell, point one, point two, point three, point four, point five. If I didn't have those five lines, I would have, it would have been a completely different experience for you as, as an audience member. Okay. I've gotten to the point now where, I, where that's all I really need, but I still need it. I need yeah. to think through what is the story I am going to tell before I walk in there. And then when I when I know the story I'm going to tell, then I can just mess around as long as I tell that story. So that's the first thing. There's this, like even 
even for this charity function where I just literally just hopped in the cab from work and just came on out. When I was in the cab, I was thinking, what's a story? And yep. that was the that was my five lines. That that that's what I needed. So that's the first thing. Okay. The second thing is once you're confident that you know what your story is, in terms of holding, in terms of first of all reaching an audience. Well, to to be honest, this is where I have I have it easier than you do because I only speak to people who are interested in what I have to say. Yep. Like I don't I don't have. I, I, I'm established enough that I'm not going to get random people showing up to watching one of my TV shows or showing up to one of my shows and not wanting to hear me. Like there, whereas there will be times when you'll get people who yeah. don't want to hear you. Yeah, so that's, 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 that's insightful that's, though that, that, to think about that difference between it, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So, so that makes that's make, that makes my life a little bit easier. But having said that, I wasn't, I didn't start off that way. I had to get to that point. So, I am familiar with what it's like to have to win over an audience who aren't interested in what you have to say. Um, I would say that the, that the, I mean, like just thinking back to 10 years ago when I, when, when I did have to win over the audience, it really wasn't that different to what I described at the very beginning of this podcast, that mode of you and I have a little secret. We've got a little connection that no one else understands. Yeah. That the and it's us against the world. And yeah, you, you know that, you and me. <laughs> that is the attitude to that I have, I naturally go to to try and create a connection with my audience. Um, I try to I try to think to myself at all times, why are these people listening to me right now? Yeah. Like whether they want to or not, what what are they looking for? What are they looking for? And I try and deliver it. Like, for instance, this podcast that we're talking about right now, how many times have I related it back to sales, what I'm saying? Yes. Because I'm consciously, I, I, I'm constantly thinking about who's my audience here? And, and, so I'm, and so I keep on thinking about what do they want to hear? What are they interested in? And I'm going to try and even if what I'm saying really has nothing to do with what they're interested in, at least I'll make it seem like it does. Yep. I'm going to link it back as many times as I possibly can at the very least. Um, so that's that's an important thing, I think, to yep. be conscious of why your audience is is watching you. And, by the way, this does actually relate to TV in a way because I feel like when I'm pitching a TV show, Okay. Well, not so much, not such pitching. When I'm coming up with a new TV format, I think to myself, yeah, these days with TV, people, people don't just turn on the TV and watch whatever's there. They have too many other options. There's too much competition for for the eyeballs. There's video games, YouTube, whatever. There's streaming. People only sit down to watch a show if they particularly want to watch that show. Yeah. So why are they going to watch your show? There are a million funny shows out there. The people can just on YouTube watch the best of British or American comedy, which is probably funnier than you are, I'm saying to myself. Yes. So so these guys have 20 riders. You can't compete with 20 riders. Yes. So why are they going to watch your show? And I think to myself, okay, I might be teaching them something that they – wouldn't otherwise know. I can the advantage I have over the twenty riders from America is I know what's going on in their locality. Yes. I know what's going on. 
we have a connection that the 20 riders don't have to that person because we're both Australian. So what's, what is relevant to Australians? What is relevant to this moment in time? If I can be more topical, what, what can I, what can I give them that they will want to talk to their friends about? Cause that might be a reason they might watch your show because they know it's the kind of show that's going to give them something that they can show off to their friends about. Like that's the reason I keep on making shows like the checkout yeah. and Planet America shows, which shows where, where I feel like the audience, it's about a topic they they might be interested in and I'll give them something to take away because that gives them a reason to watch my show. Yeah. And so to relate this back to, like I said, I do, to yeah. relate this back to, to, to your question about, about sales and so forth, um, I think when you're trying to hit this audience that isn't interested, you just go, okay, I know I'm trying to make a sale here. I know I'm trying to land... I don't know what the phrase is, Latin account. That's what they say in Mad Men. I've got no idea. (laughs) (laughs) But Let's roll with it. Yeah, but the audience, the audience right now, they're not here for me to land the account or to make a sale. They're here for some other reason. What's the reason that they're here? And let's connect to them over that reason. And then if if you approach it that way, I think you're more likely to make that connection. So, so we have this framework that we talk to, the ROI test. So it's relevance, originality, and impact. So it's that idea of relevant. You know, why would they watch me? Originality, could they just get it somewhere else? And then what's the impact going to be for them? You know, if they're going to give me 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 20, you know, what are they going to get from it? And it sounds like it's aligned to what it is we do because although they're sitting in a room hearing us out, they don't always want to be. Yeah. yeah. And so how do you make them want to hear us? That's the first stage. Then we can talk about the rest and actually get them to, uh, you know, want to buy, so to speak. Um, in, ter- in terms of, sorry, to finish off, to finish off uh, before you, I just remember the original question was about holding the audience as well. Yeah. And the only thing I'd add to that is that if you, uh, if you don't remember, I mean, this is, I'm doing this right now. I'm like, ironically, if you don't remember why you are saying something, yeah. the audience is lost. Yeah. You need to keep on thinking, why am I saying this right now? Yeah. Are this particular thing? And then and then tie it back in, which is what I'm doing now to, yeah. to the original question. But that is how you hold the audience. If, yeah. if you've got the audience, then then you only lose the audience when you forget that they're there and you're rabbiting on. If you keep on thinking, okay, all right, the, the, uh, what I'm saying is important for, this is what you're thinking, is important for this reason to communicate this point which then gets back to your structure because you're telling, because you're going, okay, I'm finishing this part of the structure off. That's why I'm telling this. And then you fold it up nice and neat in a little bow so everyone knows what you just did. Yeah. You're not going to lose the audience there. Yeah. Like, so that that's the, I think you only lose the audience from negligence basically. Okay. And that's my, I think one of my biggest weaknesses, I'm the king of tangents and king of <laughs> And sometimes I'm partway through thinking, why am I telling this story? Yeah, um, you, I like to have bullet points next to me and I, that's why I'm telling the story. That's okay. Come back, come back, yeah. but, but make sure you do tie it back. And, and yes. I think that's important. Um, you've been really generous with your time. I was going to ask for one more thing from you. Yeah. Just when it's worked and rather than sort of talk about the structure of it, can you give an example of whether it's the chaser or, um, you know, anything to check out or something you're working on now, like a, a story of when you've done a sketch or, and it's just worked out for you that you just think, this structures come together. So, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I give you a few examples because I, I focus so much on, on structure. Um, the uh, probably my, 
probably the my favorite my favorite piece that I ever did was at the end of the war and everything, third series of war and everything. And we were, we were in a very tough situation at that point in time because that was after the Make a Wish scandal. <laughs> and not only had we had much of our audience had enough of us at that point in time, but we just couldn't leave the ABC without constantly people filming us with mobile phone cameras and leaking it to the Herald. The Herald were over and over again airing our raw material, which was so annoying because it's not funny until it's edited. Yeah. <laughs> but it also it would remo- ruin the joke. It would ruin whatever is coming up on the show. And yeah. uh, and so we, we were having all kinds of horror and we got to a point at that point in time where, where when people want to like you, they they find ways to like you. When they when they want to not like you, they find ways to not like you. At yeah. that point in time, we had a lot of people trying to trying to not like us and trying to pick holes in whatever we were doing, which made it made the standard that we had to meet much higher than it otherwise would be. So there was a lot of it was very hard to do stunts for those two reasons. So I tried to just do a completely different thing. I just thought, you know what, I'm not going to do the stuff that we have been doing until now. Let's try and create a whole new form. And I went away, first principles, and I tried to make a kind of a report that had little half stunts that, that weren't proper stunts, little sketchy little elements, little bits and pieces, and then you'd throw them together in a, like an eight-minute long report rather than a two-minute stunt, you'd have... 10 stunts, 10 mini stunts and 10 mini little joke things in, a, in an yeah. eight-minute report. And I did it on the love calculator, which was, I'm not, not sure if you remember, but um, back then they had these, these apps that you could, it was, a, it was a phone line you would ring up and pay exorbitant amounts of money to, about to. Like every week they would bill you forever till you die. Yeah. And it, and. With this service, you would then put in your name plus someone else's name and they give you a, a love compatibility percentage, right? <laughs> Obviously, it's bullshit. But, the, um, but I, I, I did an expose of the love calculator and I sat down and mapped out this outrageously complicated structure that we'd never done, tried anything like this before. I ended up taking four weeks making this piece. Yeah, I put because I was just I was so just inventing something new, yeah. and in my view, it was the best thing I ever did. I was so proud of it because I just did it the right way from first principles, yeah. all the structure, all the techniques I had, and it was really hard, and it came off. And it's especially hard to do that when there's something totally new. Yeah, it's not so hard when you're when you're just tweaking something that already exists. But the, that that for me, and also I had a follow up segment. From the, doing the same thing, which is much better, much better known than the love calculator one, which is the one where I botoxed myself. Yes, that was that was that. the second the, the the second episode of this new kind of segment where, okay. I, where I did all this stuff as well. So those are the, the two segments I was proudest of because I observed the rules I've just told you. Yeah, fantastic. And it's good you also got a sort of scientific experiment out of it. We now know that the love calculator is not true, right? It's, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. We all know it's star science. That's with the real way of connecting. I, I deserve a Nobel Prize, yeah. Yeah, I think so, <laughs> I think so too. Look, is there any final thoughts or any final things that you think the, the audience should know and then anything we should be watching of yours? Um, 
Uh, to be honest, I'm about to take a bit of a holiday, so so hopefully you won't be watching me at the beginning of next year because you'll be outside my house. Okay. Um, but, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, anything else? Uh, look, I would say, I, I, I know it's easy for me to say this, but I really do think that, and I'm not sure if this is the same for sales or not, but with entertainment, I feel like, there are a lot of people out there who have the ability, who have the raw talent, a lot of people. But think about how many people hang around in the TV industry. How many people, think of the people on TV now, how many of them were around 10 years ago? Yeah. Like it's, and especially when you remove the people who are just auto cue readers, who are just good looking, <laughs> if you remove them, like people who actually, who actually have a personality or, or particularly in comedy, how many of them are around who have been around 10 years ago? Because people get thrown up all the time in the Australian TV industry because it's so small and they're always looking for someone new. So they always throw up a new, a new face. Yeah. How long do they last? There's, and how long you last has got nothing to do with your talent. It's totally to do with the ability to execute over and over and over again. And that is drudgery. So going over and over again, and that's about skill. And sorry, that's not about innate skill. That's about skill you learn. That's about that's about a craft. That's what that is. That's the ability to to make twenty different pots in the kiln. That's what that's about. Yeah. And uh, and I feel that yeah that that people I feel get too caught up in fixating on inverted commas talent and not at all. Uh, don't give don't give nearly enough credence to or uh, importance to um, just professionalism. Yeah, there's so little professional. There isn't nearly enough professionalism out there. And the people who are true professionals, they can keep on going forever. They really can. And so try and be professional is what I would say. And that's going to take a long time, but yeah. you'll be able to keep on doing it for a long time once you get it right. And I think that's the bit, and we, we call this a masterclass because, you know, we want to speak to people who are masters at what they do, and you've clearly been able to do this sustain for a long period of time. And I think in our industry, you can be average for a period of time. You can make a living, and in some cases, a good living uh, from doing it, but you'll never be at the top of your game. You'll never be one of the best at what you do because it's not what you do just in front of the customer. It's the work you do around it. Mm. And I think it's, it's similar in that sense, uh, but I think at our uh, clients and our network has it much easier in the early days than you do as a stand-up comic trying to trying to get a start in there. But look, um, thank you so much. It's just been so fun for me. Uh, I really appreciate every moment of this. Um, so thanks again, and we'll make sure we keep looking you up. Thank you very much, Johnny. Much appreciated. Thanks, Chaz.